Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Mark Shandro with the Shandro Group in Long Beach, California. Last year, he closed 112 transactions with a total sales volume of $24 million. His average sales price was $215,000, of which 13% were buyers and 87% were sellers. He operates a team with seven members, three buyer agents, one field agent, one closing manager, one accounting manager, and one team leader. Mark Shandro is the team leader of the Shandro Group. He has been an agent for eight years. He works the Los Angeles and Orange County markets. Mark's been on a wild ride during his career. He's remained flexible and adapted to the changing markets. Mark believes you must have a diverse mix of business to survive. He covers a wide range of lead generation techniques, including Bandit signs, yard signs, internet leads, referrals, sphere of influence, cold calling, door knocking, door hangers, REO, short sell, pay-per-click, email, podcasts, and videos. Mark attributes a big part of his success to coaching and masterminds. In coaching, he has been both the student and the coach. In masterminds, he's been a panelist and a moderator. Mark describes how to make these mediums pay off. Mark talks about the power of saving and investing in passive income businesses. Plus, he talks about giving back to your community through donations to charities and nonprofits. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Mark. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you inviting me to be here. Mark, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you were doing before you got into real estate. You know, Mike, you, know, you mentioned on the top of the call, you know, I do live in Long Beach, California, beautiful, sunny Southern California, but I, I did not grow up here. I actually am originally from the East Coast. I went to high school and college in New Hampshire, you know, attended U- the University of New Hampshire and got a business degree there. And then upon graduation, you know, my wife and I, you know, packed up our car and, you know, drove west, you know, and just to kind of look for new opportunities and adventures. I was very involved in learning more about and getting involved in social change movements. So, you know, we drove around the country, spent about a month, uh, six weeks doing that, and ended up landing here in Long Beach. And I actually got a job, believe it or not, my first job. Uh, you know, and first and I think actually first and last job ever in my life uh, was working with Acorn. Are you familiar with Acorn, Mike? I'm not. What is that? 
You know, Acorn, they have since uh, shut down, uh, you know, recently they were in the media a few years ago, but Acorn is an acronym for the Association of Community Organizations for Reform Now. It's a grassroots-based social justice movement where my role in the organization was, and it was a brief role, you know, six or eight months or so, was to, you know, go into lower-income neighborhoods such as Compton and Watts and South Central door knock. I literally went door to door, you know, as, you know, this kind of uh, starry-eyed white white kid uh, from New England, you know, with, you know, with my nice uh, college degree, you know, going door to door in predominantly Hispanic and black neighborhoods within L.A. and getting the neighborhood to organize and use organization to fight the city for better city services. You know, I don't know if you're familiar, but a gentleman by the name of Sal Alinsky, he kind of championed the idea of, you know, of social reform by, you know, the idea is that, you know, like you hear, you know, it's better to teach someone to fish than just give them fish. And, you know, that kind of, that thinking, that theory went into, you know, the idea is to, you know, get people to organize, teach them about organization and their abilities to, you know, fight the city uh, on a group level instead of an individual and, you know, and get better city services for them. So that's, that was my first job right out of college. Uh, you know, it was, it was challenging at best. Uh, it was very difficult for me. You know, I, I was certainly a fish out of water in that experience. And then from there, I was still very interested in getting involved in community development. And, and from there, I went and I was, you know, for the next six or eight, year, eight years, I was an executive director at a national nonprofit called Bike Station that I helped co-found. And, you know, the, the goal of Bike Station was to go after federal, local, and state funds. So I was essentially a lobbyist to raise money to increase pedestrian bicycle transportation as, a, as an alternative to automobiles. So, you know, I've always been involved in community development and community activism, you know, and, you know, continue to do that. And I did that for about eight years. So that's what I did. I grew the organization from, you know, just a couple of employees to we had facilities, you know, five or so spread from Washington, D.C. to Seattle. To, to Long Beach and, and Berkeley and San Francisco. So I did that for quite a while. And then on the weekends, uh, and on the weekends, Mike, what I did was, you know, I bought real estate. You know, I, <clears throat> I realized that the nonprofit world was not going to provide me the financial future that I needed for a family. Uh, so on the weekends, you know, I, I, <clears throat> I would take my bike and I would literally ride around in neighborhoods and look for the, you know, the empty houses, the one with the long weeds, the ones with, you know, the, you know, you know, the broken windows, the, the cars in the driveway that have been there for too long. And I would write letters to homeowners and started buying real estate and, you know, doing it that way. And got, that's how I kind of got into real estate. Okay, so you slowly transitioned into real estate from an investor into a broker. What made you decide to switch from investor to broker? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. Like, after I got out of the nonprofit world, you know, I took a, you know, a couple of months sabbatical. I think actually a six-month sabbatical. Continued to do some consulting, and then at that time got my real estate license. And you know, I got my license purely on the idea of being uh, being able to get additional access to properties at a at a discount. You know, thinking that getting into the MLS is going to allow me to get properties at a better value. And, you know, I went to a couple of, you know, you know, I got my license, you know, I went to Thailand for, for a month or so with my family, came back, got into the business again, and I signed up, you know, I kind of hung my license at Keller Williams Realty, 
which is, you know, as you know, is a large international real estate company, and started taking some of their classes and realized that being an investor versus being an agent is a lot more riskier, you know. You have your capital at stake, you know, and you might make ten or twenty or thirty thousand dollars on a transaction, but of course you're risking a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars in cash. I learned pretty quickly that you can make that money in sales without the risk. And also it's much more consistent. You know, being an investor it's very diff difficult to generate a consistent cash flow. You know, you're always being pressured to turn and burn stuff to generate the cash so I could feed my family. And that certainly made me very nervous. The other thing is, you know, if you can't find the right deal and you buy something at too high a price, you can certainly lose a lot of money. Or, you know, if you're pressured and you need the money, you got to sell. You might have to sell at a discount because you need your cash out. So, you know, I quickly learned that, you know, doing the real estate sales and at the time, and this was back around 2005 or so, you know, the average sales price here in Longwich was four hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand dollars. You know, and I was making fifteen thousand dollars a transaction, which was a lot of money. You know, it was a lot of money, especially when you know from the nonprofit world where I was used to making about fifty thousand dollars a year, and I was able to make fifteen thousand dollars a transaction without any risk. So, to me, it seemed it seemed really logical, and it was a challenge. You know, I was really challenged by learning how to be a salesman. It was new to me. I was challenged by learning the different personality styles. You know, I was challenged by competing against the other agents in my office. You know, I have a pretty competitive, uh, you know, I have a pretty competitive nature about me, you know, when it comes to business and, and, and you know, the kind of things that we do. I really got into it and I excelled pretty quickly. I had that background of, you know, door knocking in South Central. Uh, so, you know, I took to the streets and I did a tremendous amount of cold calling when I first started. I did three to four hours every single day of lead generation that was either door knocking or cold calling, really. And, you know, kind of got into that way and did really well in the beginning. Sounds like you had a fast start. Yeah, you know, I had a pretty quick start. You know, I was, I was fortunate. You know, I you know, became a, a pretty, top pretty good top producer, you know, on a monthly basis in my office. It was a small Keller Williams office here in Bixby Knowles that's unfortunately since closed down. But... Um, yeah, I, I lucked out. I, I, I kind of jumped in at a market that was really hot. Uh, you know, as everyone was, you know, values were jumping, you know, 10 or 20%. In a month, it was insane. Uh, there was a lot of hysteria. Uh, you know, of course, the biggest challenge at that point was everybody had a real estate license, you know. Uh, you, know the, you know, I'm sure you've, you've probably heard this joke, but, you know, the joke in the business back then was, police officer pulls you over, you know, they don't ask for your driver's license, they ask for your real estate license, because so many people had real estate licenses at that time. How long have you been in the real estate business? You know, I'm going on about eight years now. How many transactions did you close last year? Last year, you know, I closed, I think, 112 units, you know, including buyer and seller sides. You're in Long Beach, California. Where is Long Beach, California? Long Beach is located just south of Los Angeles on the coast, essentially we butt up against Orange County, which is just to the south. So, you know, my market area is, you know, essentially 10, 15 miles outside of, believe it or not, it encompasses probably two to three million people. It's a really large market area. You know, the density here in, in the Long Beach area is really low, but, you know, there are a lot of houses. You know, so I do, you know, from Long Beach to Huntington Beach to Seal Beach, you know, those are in Orange County, up into Torrance, which is in L.A., and to Los Angeles itself. 
uh, you know, Compton, Inglewood, uh, Linwood, Palos Verdes, San Pedro. You know, so we have a lot of cities in our, in our area that are very close to me within a 10 or 15 mile distance. Describe your current real estate market. You know, it's changed a lot. You know, since my business right now is predominantly bank-owned properties, you know, we tend to be in a little bit of a lower price point, I think, from the average. You know, you know, my average right now is around $215,000. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's the market average. I'm sure the market average is higher, probably around the 280 mark. Uh, you know, the good news is our, our, my firms are, I think our days on market right now are something like 17. It's really crazy. You know, we're getting a lot of activity. There's very low inventory right now in the market. So we're seeing tremendous amount of offers on properties. But that price point, you know, even though it's, you know, it's not the million dollar price point, it turns quickly, you know. So we're really fortunate in that we can turn a lot of volume because, you know, that, that's a very active price point in terms of whether it's investors buying properties to keep as rentals or renovate and flip or it's first-time home buyers buying into a home that, uh, you know, that is competitive in terms of paying rent. You know, because it's, it's unbelievable right now, Mike, honestly. You know, when I was an investor, and, you know, I still am, you know, it was hard to find something at $100,000 a unit. But now, you know, you can buy that stuff all day long and even less. So it's really changed since I started. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a, it's a night and day shift from the beginning. Now, your overall market now, if you were to look at it, your entire market, what percentage of the properties are retail sales versus REO and short sale? Last month, you know, again, that's a number that's changing also. Last month, you know, out of the 100% of the sales, half of those were equity sales, 25% of those were short sales, and the other 25% were bank-owned or REO. You know, that's different than last year. Last year, it was more, you know, I would say it was probably about 50% were bank-owned, 25% short sale, and 25% equity. So it's really changed, and that's, that, that change has happened, and we've seen that change in the last six months. It's one thing that always surprises me, but I guess should never surprise me, is that the real estate market can change almost overnight. I mean, it's really, you think it's something that is, is slower because the transaction time is longer, but you know, stuff, stuff changes quickly, and um, we've seen it whip around. And I think that's, you know, that's the key to success in this business is that you don't ever get comfortable. <laughs> You've got to change with the market. You've got to constantly be adapting your marketing, your training, your techniques, your scripts, your dialogues for the market. It's always changing. It's, 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 it's like the ocean, you know. It, it's, it comes in and goes out. It comes in and goes out. And, you know, sometimes the tide is high. Sometimes the tide is low. It's something that is, it's almost impossible to predict. And every time I think I got it predicted, it, it does exactly the opposite, you know, of, of what happens. I was expecting... You know, right now, you know, where we are in the summer of 2012, I was really expecting a lot of REO uh, assignments, and that has not been the case at all. You know, it's, it's almost all but dried up. Do you think that the banks are making a shift from REO to emphasis on short sale? Yeah, you know, I don't think they're doing it. You know, I think they're being forced to do it, but definitely. You know, they're, they're, um, I, I think they are absolutely being pressured by the federal government, the state governments, with the attorney general settlement, you know, to push towards doing uh, short sales. You know, the foreclosures are, you know, they're always going to be here, 
but you know I, I don't they're, they're not going to be like they were you know there's too much risk in it for the banks to continue the foreclosure and they they're constantly postponing these trustee sales before I got into the REO business I did a tremendous amount of short sales you know I was really one of the first people in Long Beach to really take short sales I probably even did one of the first ones of this last cycle and ran with it I did really well you know one month I listed 19 short sales um, I see myself getting back to that over the next couple of months. You know, we're starting to take a lot more of them as as the REO inventory slows down. You know, we just move over, we change gears, and I think that's one of the things that allow us to survive and thrive in this business is that you've got to predict a little bit of what's going to happen and you've got to adjust. And you know, the short sales are becoming a lot easier too than they, than they first were. You've been able to make those adjustments, those shifts. You've been in the market for a while. In 2005, you were not doing REO and short sale. What were you doing in 2005? 2005, you know, when I first got into the business, you know, I was basically door knocking, you know, so I would go to neighborhoods and I would go door to door looking for people that were interested in either buying or selling. I was doing cold calling where I would literally go, you know, I had a sheet of paper that would go, for example, you know, one of our, our telephone prefixes is 562 424, and then I would just go down a page. I'd go 424-001. I call that number. 562-424-002-003-004-005. And I would just go through and literally do it for hours, five hours a day. And it's funny is because some of my, it's ironic, because some of my best clients even today are those that I met making those phone calls, you know? And that's what I would do, you know? I would do, you know, I had a thing up on my wall that said, if you spend the majority of your time Every day, looking for new business, you will be successful. And I tried to do that. I spent the majority of my time calling and prospecting. You know, I did a lot of, you know, eventually I got into doing, you know, a lot of expired and canceled. You know, I, I really uh, ramped up in that. And, you know, in 2006, 2007, you know, that represented 50%, 60% of my business. You made a shift to short sales. To short sales first. Yes, I didn't do REOs. REOs, I kind of got by accident. I started doing short sales, and I would, um, you know, when the market was changing, and it was around 2006, seven, you know, uh, I think I did my first one in early 2007, uh, and then, you know, I got on with this company called, and they're still around today, Titanium Solutions. They were really, you know, ahead of the curve in terms of doing that. I was working with them. I did one of my first short sales with a Litton loan where the, you know, the occupant got $4,000 to, to short sell. And, you know, and then I continued to, I had tons of bandit signs up. I mean, do you know what a bandit sign is? What is a bandit sign? You know, a bandit sign are those, those ugly yellow signs that you see all around the place that advertise anything from get-rich-quick schemes to, you know, mine one was, buy your, you know, I'll buy your house cash, right? And that was a lead generation tactic. Of course, the majority of people that were calling were, they were underwater. There was no way they could sell cash if they wanted to, and I would flip them into short sales. I ran a lot of what are called penny saver ads. Penny saver is a, is a small magazine here that goes to every household, and I was running, you know, buy your home for cash sale ads. And, uh, you know, I generated a lot of business like that. And, and, you know, I built up a pretty good portfolio of short sales. And this was back when, you know, my success rate in closing those was maybe 40 or 50%. It was very stressful. It was an incredibly emotional time uh, for me uh, and for the market and for a lot of my clients. 
you know, a lot of people were really unfamiliar with the real estate process in terms of getting out of underwater properties. There was a lot of stress on people, and it it was hard to close transactions in, in any timely manner. You know, you would have uh, 90, 120, you know, 230. I mean, it was crazy. You know, escrows would last forever because the banks were not accustomed to handling short sales. And then I realized that I, you know, I, I, it was, it was going to be impossible for me to have any kind of predictive cash flow model if I didn't diversify. I had to get out of the short sales because I was doing, you know, at that point I got into, you know, like I said, at one point I took 19 listings in one month. I was taking, I was ranking them up, you know, but it was just very stressful. And so I looked to get into the REO business and, uh, you know, got my first account and, you know, just by chance with Aquin, made a connection with someone from India Believe it or not, again, cold calling. I would, I, you know, I would find how I would do it was, you know, I would find the number to Aquin, for example, and I knew they had 1-800-899, whatever, right? And I would go 1-800-899-1111, 1-800-899-1112. Hi, my name is Mark Shandro. I'd just like to tell you about what we do, how we can help. And I would just go through their numbers, you know, literally calling because, you know, you know, all the companies have the same extensions, right? Same thing. And, you know, eventually I connected with with some people, and they started assigning me properties. How many calls did you make before you bumped into somebody that said, yeah, we can help you out? At that time, you know, my goal was to make 50 new contacts every single day and get one listing or book one listing appointment every day. So I was pretty successful at that. I would, you know, at the time, I would get one listing a day. But you got to make a lot of calls. Hundreds. How many calls did you have to make to get 50 contacts? About 200. It would take me about four hours. A good day. I mean, I didn't always get to 50. 50 was my goal. It was hard to get to 50, to talk to 50 decision makers every single day. It was very tough. But, you know, that's what I would do. And, you know, it's, it's, it's how I built my business. And, you know, I, I still think the telephone, you know, it's like this, you know, I mean, you got to give good phone, you know, you got you to gotta be good on the phone. And, you know, that's that, the business, that's the business, you know. Basically, you were able to dial about was that 50 dials an hour and talked about 12 people an hour? Yeah, 12 was good, you know. Honestly, I would get to 10 usually, 8 to 10. And I would track it religiously, you know, and, and I, was, I, was pretty, I was pretty committed, you know, in the beginning and generated a lot of business that way. And honestly, it was, it was, it was great, you know. My margins were, were wonderful, you know. When I ran the equity business, you know, I was running at a 40 to 45% profit margin compared to now in the REO world. Tough, you know. I'm, you know, I'm lucky to make 23 to 28 percent profit after, you know, prior pre-tax. You know, after I pay myself a salary, it's, it's, it's not a high profit business. Those profit margins were after you pay yourself a salary. Yeah, after I pay myself, you know, like eight thousand dollars a month. Nothing, you know, not a lot. Let's talk about your business today, and you've got a couple of niches. Describe those niches. You said REO is there. Is it still your biggest niche? It is still my biggest niche right now. I don't see that being my biggest niche in the next six months. In fact, I, I see it almost all but disappearing. So, so our niches are primarily, you know, the REO, uh, HUD, which is part of that, you know, which is a great client to have. It's been an amazing client for me. Um, you know, we do, we still continue, my team continues to do between 40 and 50 broker price opinions. They're called BPOs a month, which is great. You know, it's great consistent revenue. Uh, you know, we do the short sales. Of course, uh, we have a few equity sales, and you know I have a buyer team that does does some transactions as well. So, one of the things I've really learned in this business 
and you know I constantly am learning it every single day. It seems like is you got to you got to be diversified. You know, it's really hard to be focused on one tight niche only and be successful every month. The business is cyclical. You know, it goes up and down. You're cyclical. You know, you work up and down. You know, everyone doesn't have the same energy every single day, every single month. And what I have found, and it's only it's taken me about eight years, and I still struggle with it, is I've got to have these little, you know, little spokes. You know, it, it, you know, it's like you think of a wagon wheel, okay? And each one of those spokes is a source of business. The more spokes you have, the stronger your wagon wheel is going to be. If you're riding only on one spoke, you know, you hit, it's not going to last very long. And, you know, I've, I've been guilty of that. You know, I, I really let a lot of my other business go while I was building a, a, a large REO business over the last two years. And, and I'm paying for that because I've got to get back into the trenches now and, and getting back on the phone and making those calls and, and building the other spokes back up. You know, because the REO was, it was, honestly, it was easy. You know, it was, you wake up, you get an email. You know, here's a new property. You wake up, you get another one. You know, it was, um, didn't require a lot of, it didn't require any prospecting, you know. So, you know, I'm really trying to build those, those spokes out again. You're able to generate business from multiple methods. Let's go down a quick list of the ways that you're generating business. I'm going to come back to REO, by the way. You mentioned to us you have a couple different things. You do sign calls and IDX, Realtor.com, Dave Ramsey, Agent Machine. I'd like to talk about each of those real quickly. What are you doing to generate business by sign calls? Put up signs. <laughs> really. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, again, this is something that's constantly evolving. You know, we have a couple of different signs. You know, the market's changed again. You know, whereas, you know, we, again, you know, the, the, the bandit signs that I talked about before, where I would post them all around the neighborhoods that would say, you know, I'll buy your house cash, get out in seven days, call me. You know, we have other ones that are like the yellow ugly foreclosure signs that say, you know, foreclosures, make an offer today, 1-800 number. Uh, you know, of course, those will all go into a Cal capture system. You know, we also have our regular for sale signs, you know, just the sign that, you know, is in the yard. So the great news is, you know, when you have 100 properties or so and you have 40 or so of those on the market, there's a lot of signs out there and it generates a lot of phone calls. So... You know, I actually, a lot of those, none of those calls come to me. They come, they, those all go to my buyer team. So those generate a tremendous amount of business for them. You know, the, the phones ring nonstop, and we get those call routed. They go, they go to the agent, and then, they're, of course, they're in a call capture system where we can go through and, and continue to follow up with them, you know, until whether it's a dead lead or, you know, they book an appointment. On the sign, on your yard sign, are you putting a direct call number or a number that goes into an IVR system, an 800 number? Yeah, 800 number. Okay, so you don't have a direct call number or it all goes into the IVR? All goes into the, I don't have a direct, all goes into the 800 number. Okay, and so then when they go into the IVR system, they have an option to press zero, say, and get connected with your office. Is that what you mean by these calls coming into the office? Correct. Well, yeah. well I can explain exactly how it works is this. We have several 800 numbers. You know, one of them is primarily focused when we market to buyers. The other one is primarily focused to when we market to short sales. The other one is primarily focused when I market to equity sellers. So, you know, an 800 number, that 800 number for buyers is on all my yard signs, you know, like the, the wooden ones that you see in the front yard. That number, a customer calls, 800, it goes, and then it gets directly routed to an agent, you know, and then we have a record of that call. 
are they listening to a recorded message, a pre-recorded message when they call in? Nope. Or is it just that you want to capture that phone number and that's why you're using the system? Correct. Capture that phone number. So it's a capture the phone number, but it is going directly to your agent. Capture the phone number, goes directly to an agent, and then sends an email out you know, with that information also. Are you also able to track the source of the call then? Are, are you putting any kind of extension number or identifier at the end of that 800 number? No, no, we don't do any of those extensions. You know, I've, I've found, honestly, for us, you know, and I've tried that, you know, and I, you know, like an Arch Telecom system or something like that. You know, for us, the management of, of maintaining that system has always been kind of a challenge, you know, and making sure the information is current and stuff like that. So the reality is, you know, we get so many calls, you know. Uh, I mean, we're overwhelmed with leads, you know. We almost have too many leads. We don't, we don't talk to people unless they're ready to buy or sell in the next three weeks, you know. And, and if you're not find another Century 21 agent or somebody who can hang out with you and hold your hand for six months, you know? We're looking to do business today. We're not big fans of incubating a lot of leads for a long time, you know? I just go uh, for the quick hits, you know? And that's how I've been able to grow my business to this size, you know? I'm sure we could probably double it if we had a lot of that long-term follow-up stuff, but, you know, I'm interested in making money today, this month, and next month, and I know that we can generate business, and, you know, we've been successful in doing that. You also have 800 numbers for short sales and then equity sellers. Are those also being funneled directly to your office? Those get funneled directly to me. So, uh, you know, I, I act as pretty much the primary listing agent. You know, I'm, I, you know I, 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 I rarely represent buyers. It's just, it's just, I just don't have the time for that. You know, I might have a few here and there, you know, from past clients or, or large hedge funds or large investors, things like that. But I, I, I almost never work with buyers. You know, I don't show property. I don't, you know, if they want to see it, they got to go look at it and then come talk to me. But the listing leads, you know, I'll jump on, you know, I get the call, I'm on it, right? Seven days a week, 24 hours a day. You know, that listing call comes in. That's my responsibility to call and convert. So our goal is to return every call within two minutes. You know, hopefully never. Hopefully it goes straight to a live person. And, you know, we felt that, you know, the, the, the most successful way to convert a lead is by being incredibly responsive quickly. How do you make sure that your buyer agents are doing that? How do you make sure that they're returning those calls quickly? Well, if they don't open escrows, they don't get paid. You know, that, that's really it, you know. We, we have two large types of leads. We have a ton of Internet leads that come in just through, you know, a lot of the Internet marketing that we do. That's all free. I don't pay for really anything except Realtor.com. And so we get a lot of leads like that, so they return those. And then our calls, I can look at a call log, and I can see what our average return time is. I can see what the average length of the call is. You know, so I track that stuff so that we, can, we better tune it and stuff. But for the most part, I try and get agents, you know, I've, I mean, I've burned through a lot of buyer agents, you know, and, and at this point in my career, I don't, I don't bring on people that aren't hungry. So, you know, I make sure that they're hungry, and if they're hungry, they tend to work pretty well. How are you generating calls for short sales and equity sellers? You know, our primary marketing for short sales and equity, you know, since I'm get, kind of getting back into it, you know, over the last couple of months, you know, we're, we're retooling a bunch of different things. But, you know, I run a Google pay-per-click campaign, you know, where we drive short sellers to a, my, one, of my, one of my websites, which is markshander.com. You know, it gets a lot of hits. Uh, that does really well. We also, um, we also have been doing a lot of the door hangers. You know, we door hang neighborhoods. It's been, that's been, you know, I'm testing that. You know, it's somewhat successful. 
you know, I've been getting a few calls in here. Honestly, the biggest way for me right now that's been generating short sale leads is being very in tune with my sphere of influence and like whenever I get a short sale new listing, really being aggressive about asking for referrals. And that's been really successful for us, you know, getting you know, you know, you do one quality short sale, and they know four or five other people that are in a similar situation, and that's been really good for us. You know, getting out there and just promoting the referral business. You know, I've I've gone down the road and done a lot of the other stuff. I've you know, I've door knocked, and of course, the notice of defaults, the notice of trustee sales, the you know, and the 90-day lates. I've mailed to them. I've done a lot of that, and you know, you end up spending a lot of money and getting a little return calling them, you know, it's, it's been harder. But, um, you know, our primary way is getting referrals out there and, and, and really focusing on generating leads through the use of good search engine optimization on our website and, of course, generating leads through the pay-per-click stuff. How are you staying in front of your sphere of influence? The primary way that I stand in front of my sphere of influence is, you know, I run, you know, you're probably familiar with Craig Fort. You know, his newsletter, Service for Life, has been really good. I've used that for ever since I've gotten the business. You know, I send that out. That, that's been pretty good. You know, I also subscribe to another email server system called Happy Grasshopper, which I really like. I've been using that for the last three months, and it's been very good. So mostly email, you know, and, of course, you know, there's a lot of social media stuff. You know, you can, you know we, we were pretty active on Facebook and, and Twitter and LinkedIn. You know, I've, I've gotten a, a tremendous amount of a business, you know, referral business from those, you know, and, and of course calling, you know, I, you know, I'm not, you know, when I first started, I, I made a ton of calls, you know, I was very aggressive at the prospecting you know, I don't do it so much anymore, to be honest. I think a lot of it's, you know, just some lazier, you know, I mean, I need to be, you know, I need to be on the phones like I used to be, but you know, I don't do it as much, you know, I, you know I'm more interested in, in, in developing other, other businesses and things like that. How frequently are you contacting your sphere of influence with the newsletter and the emails? Two to three times a month. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, you pick really good days. You've got to do them Tuesday mornings. You know, I mean, you really want to be pretty strategic about it. So you're trying to send out your emails on Tuesday mornings? Yeah, Tuesday mornings, you know, around 9 o'clock, you know, is the best time i found for business, you know, like REO contacts. You know, sending stuff on the weekends, it just gets kind of pushed in all of their junk, you know. Any other day on a Monday, you know, they're too involved. Every once in a while, we might do something like the uh, two or three days right after the end of the month, you know, like the second or the third. You know, for bank clients, it's a good time because they're down. You know, they've already had their crazy week of the end of the month, and then, you know, we hit them at the, after that. I try and make calls on that day. You know, if you have a first of the month like this month where it lands on a Friday, that's a winner. That's a great day to call. You know, so I'll hit the phones on those days. Let's talk about a couple more of your business generating marketing you're doing. You have VIP sites, visits. What was that? Was that what you were talking about, SEO? Yeah, you know, exactly. We, we have, I think I have three or four websites. You know, we all, you know, my brother and I, who's on my team, we do a podcast that we push out called livinglongbeach.com. It's interesting, you know, and I do a lot of videos. I have over 180, I think 180 or 170 YouTube videos, do a lot of videos. Uh, you know, I've really, you know, jumped into that uh, area. That works really well. What's interesting, though, is a lot of that stuff, it doesn't necessarily generate new leads, but what it does is when you have a lead 
or you, and, and you direct them to that, they become much more familiar with you. And then when you go to the appointment, it's a lot easier to close. Uh, the videos are great for that. So is a podcast. The podcast establishes you as a local expert, uh, you know, and people like that. But when they see you on video and they see your stuff and they see whatever you're talking about, whether you're showing a house or whether you're talking about a short sale process or, or what have, whatever, you know, they become familiar with you and it's a lot easier when you go to meet that person. They almost kind of know you. You know, it's weird. You know, it's kind of odd for me because you show up and they're already like, you know, they're already like, oh, hey, yeah, yeah, I saw this, this, I liked it, funny, you know, whatever. And, and it's a great way to break the ice and, you know, it gets that really, that familiarity. This podcast, how often are you doing it? You know, we, you know, we go in waves, but, you know, right now we're up once a month, you know, and we, uh, you know, we bring in, you know, last, last episode was just about short sales and now, you know, how right now it could not be a better time to do a short sale. In fact, it's probably the best time in anyone's over the next couple of years because of the, you know, the 2007 Mortgage Debt Relief Act that's expiring at the end of the year. We also inter- bring in title people. You know, for the next couple of months, I have, you know, I have hard money lenders scheduled uh, to speak about lending to investors and also to lending to people that have gone through short sales. We're developing a short sale financing program. So if you've had a short sale in the last couple of years, you can use some non-traditional financing. We also meet with people that are talking about rebuilding your credit, your debt, debt consolidation, uh, title. I think I mentioned a title. You know, all, you know, we we try and bring in relevant relevant people from the industry, but we also keep it very localized. You know, we go over the numbers, uh, what are the sales for the previous month, what are, what's the trending, things like that. The podcast, how are you pushing it out? Are you just uh, putting it up on your website or using iTunes? How, how are you getting it out there in the market? Yeah, absolutely. It goes, you know, we have a dedicated website just for that. And, you know, it, it links to, we just started doing it last, this past month. We're doing both audio and a video version. So we, you know, we've, we record it and then we post it, of course, through iTunes. And then we also put the video up on YouTube. And, you know, we push it out. And, of course, you know, I have all, you know, all our sites. I and mean, it's great. You know, nowadays, I mean, it's amazing with WordPress. I mean, it's just, a, it's just an incredible piece of software. You know, you put it on WordPress, and if you have it set up right, it pretty much blasts already to, you know, to all the social networking that we do, social marketing. Now, YouTube, do you have a channel on YouTube? Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's Mark Shandro. Yep. So people could go there and take a look. Yeah, absolutely. Go to, you know, type in Mark Shandro and you'll see all our, you know, all our videos. I do, you know, one of the, the videos, it's kind of funny, one of the videos, and I recommend everyone does this. I mean, the video for me that has been one of the most successful videos I've done and I need to continue to do more and I just haven't had, had a chance is, you know, I used to have a little 50cc scooter mic, you know, the, like the little, you know, Honda scooters. And what I would do is get up early in the morning around 7 o'clock on a nice sunny day, take my camera and I drive around the neighborhood, you know. And, you know, I drive around Bixby Knolls, which is where I live, and in Long Beach, film that. And, you know, you give people kind of a bird's eye view of what the neighborhood looks like, what some of the houses are, what the commercial areas are like, and then I post that. And very, people are very responsive. You know, they like that. They like to see, you know, that they know now that I'm, I'm here, I'm local, I know the neighborhood, I, I'm in the area. And that one gets a tremendous amount of hits. People really like that. And we also do, of course, all the houses. You know, every, almost every listing that we have, probably 70% of them, we do uh, a one-take, one-shot, no editing, minute-and-a-half to two-minute wa- video, two-minute walkthrough video of the house. 
those are, you know, those are of course very popular as well, you know, because then you can post them everywhere. It's easy to push those out there, and they're better than photos. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect, but you know, it gives people an idea. And you, and what I do, what we tend to do is, you know, we're very honest. You know, we're very, you know, this thing has got mold. This thing looks like, you know, junk. You know, this one's got, you know, broken, you know, it's got a broken faucet. You know, and and really kind of point out the, you know, of course you point out all the positives and the benefits, but also point out some of the negatives, you know, I mean, I mean, they're obvious, you know, the things aren't, you can't hide, right, you know, so you might as well, you know, make it, make it obvious that these are issues, and I, you know, I think you get a lot more trust that way. Back to lead generation, you had Dave Ramsey on the list, what is that? Yeah, you know, Dave Ramsey for us has been a great uh, source of business over the last, you know, 12 months or so, you know, Dave Ramsey is a radio talk show host out of Tennessee, and he's written several books as well. He's an author, best-selling author. He wrote a book called Money Makeover. And, you know, he has a syndicated radio show that's just coming here to California. And he has a network called ELPs, you know. And the, and the ELP, I think it's, I'm not sure what the acronym stands for. But, uh, you know, what you can do is you can apply to become an ELP within his network. And what happens is, you know, Dave Ramsey is, you know, he promotes... Uh, you know, financial stability. That's really his message. You know, getting, getting out of debt, owning your house, paying it off, and then he's just got this thing called baby steps, which is you know a process to become financially independent. And I'm a big believer of of being financially independent. You know, uh, you know, I don't I don't have a lot of debt. You know, I you know I like to, I, I try and save ten to you know twenty twenty to thirty percent of my income every single month, um, and really growing wealth that way. And and he has a lot of followers that do the same thing. So, you know, if you become part of his network, he sends you referrals where people that are looking to buy or sell real estate in your market. And it's competitive. You know, the, 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 the referral will go out to three agents. But again, the game for this one is easy. It's, it's first to make the call. You know, I mean, from my experience, the first person to contact that buyer or seller is going to win that, win that, you know, win that contract. So... Uh, he's been a great source of business for us. You know, obviously we pay a referral fee. I think it's 29%, something like that. But they tend to be higher-end uh, sellers, people that are very liquid, that have a lot of capital, that are also trying to, you know, either, uh, you know, get to the point where they want to be financially independent as well. So that's been a gr- the great partnership for us. Did you have to pay a fee or do an application to get on that list, on that referral list? Yes, Yes, it's free. I don't. I don't think there's a fee. I don't remember, but it is an application process, and it's based on you know the availability of, of of you know of leads in the marketplace. But it's great. It's it's also like you know I mentioned another one we spoke about earlier. Mike is Agent Machine, similar type website. It's a little bit more SEO generated, where you know people put in their information, and that lead will go out to a couple of agents, and they you know you have an opportunity to interview and. And they tend to be very, very good qualified leads, people that are sophisticated, people that are looking for someone who really knows what they're doing and who has a good presentation. Agent Machine, did you also fill out an application or pay a fee to get into that system? Correct. You fill out an application, there's, n- there's no fee that I know of, and it's just a referral, again, a referral basis. Do you remember how much that referral fee is? You know, I think it's 25%. Those two sources of business... How many transactions do you think that you're generating from them, say, either uh, monthly or annually? Uh, we generate about one each monthly. 
mean, it's not huge. So one a month each. Yeah, you know. I mean, again, our sign, and we, I mean, we have so many inbound calls that you know that's that's the best way for us so far. The inbound calls really dwarfs everything else. I want to talk about one of your areas of expertise? That's the the REO business. You have a unique perspective on REO. You not only list REO properties, you're also teaching other agents how to list REO. So I think you're going to bring a wealth of information into this conversation. Let's just start talking about your, your current REO business. Uh, how many banks and asset managers are you working with? Oh, that's a good question. You know, one time it was up to about 25 or 30 different clients. You know, I think right now, you know, the industry has heavily consolidated. You know, a lot of them have gone out of business. Uh, a lot of them have been purchased by other companies. You know, I think we're down to about five, you know, that are consistent, that are consistently giving us business. So it's not nearly as many as it used to be, but, you know, from those five, we get, you know, we get a pretty good amount, you know. And again, December, like December of last year, I got 19. November of last year, I got like 18. We were getting on average almost every single month 15 new assignments every month. Uh, however, the new year, you know, it's, it's, really, it's really changed, you know, that, that, that business is not like it used to be. Now it's more like five or eight a month. These five that you're working with, are they all private banks? Are you also working with government entities? No, I work with a combination of both. You have servicers, which are like you know the Bank of Americas of the world and the city banks, you know, which actually service, or NationStar, which actually services the loan. And then when that property goes into default, they manage the disposition of the REO. And then you have other companies that are called outsourcers, which are like, you know, the LPSs of the world, the Green River Capital, things like that, where, you know, uh, Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae or any other servicer would hire that company to, you know, when the property goes REO, they'll hand over that property to this, this outsourcer, and then the outsourcer will then hire us. So we have a few of those. And then, you know, one of my biggest accounts is HUD, which is those are homes that have had an FHA loan on them, and then when that FHA loan goes into default, let's say, for example, Bank of America is servicing that FHA mortgage, the FHA-insured mortgage, when that property goes REO, Bank of America turns around then and they go to HUD and they cash in their insurance claim. And HUD takes the home and then pays Bank of America the insurance claim. And then what HUD does is HUD hires a third-party outsourcer and in my case, here in the state of California, there are two. There's PEMCO, and then there's BLB Resources. BLB Resources is my client, and then BLB Resources assigns that property to us, and then we sell it. What's great about HUD is that um, a lot of things. Number one is they pay a full 6% commission, which is becoming increasingly rare, if not absolutely absent in the REO world. You know, my average commissions on the listing side for REOs right now is about 1.6%, whereas HUD pays 3% or 6% for, you know, for both sides. The other great thing is when you get the property assigned to you, Mike, it's assigned to you completely vacant. It's ready to go to market. It's going to be on the market in, in two weeks. Unlike a lot of properties that I have from some of these other big servicers where I've literally had them for two years, you know, where we've been doing weekly inspections, we've been, you know, and that's because we're trying to, to vacate the property and, and the occupant is, is, is challenging, the, whether they're challenging the foreclosure, they're challenging the eviction, they're filing for bankruptcy. It's a highly... High, highly labor-intensive process. So 
Um, but, you know, it's great right now because the market is so tight when you get those properties on the market, you know, they sell almost immediately. You're doing your HUD account through these outsourcers. It's not a, a direct account with HUD. If you were to look at your overall business, say, in the last six months or last 12 months, what percentage of your REO business is HUD? HUD represents about 33%, 35% of my REO business in terms of income. Are you also working with either Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac? Not directly. You know, I get some Fannie Mae properties through outsourcers. You know, Fannie Mae, you know, they have both internal, where they sell them internally, and then they outsource them. But that's, that's going away. That'll be gone probably, I would imagine. You know, they, they, they went right just recently, Mike, they went through a round and they got rid of a lot of their outsourcers. They only have three outsourcers left in the whole United States, where at one time I think they had 16. I'm sorry, when you say they, did you mean Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac or HUD? Fannie Mae, no, Fannie Mae, Fannie Mae, yeah, sorry, yeah, Fannie Mae. Freddie Mac works with three outsourcers. Freddie Mac works with, you know, they work with Green River Capital, which is a big one of my biggest clients. They work with a company called VRM, and they have one more that I, I can't quite think of. And then Fannie Mae, they outsource to... Actually, Green River Capital lost them. They outsource to uh, 24 hour, 24 asset management, Equity Point, and um, uh, one other one. And I forget what that is as well at the moment. They've all reduced, you know, because of their inventory has really shrunk. They've they've gotten rid of a lot of the outsourcers. Sounds like the REO market, although it's still active in your area, 25% of the closings is on the a downward trend right now. Would you recommend that anybody try to get into the REO business today? I do. And the reason is, Mike, is that is, you know, I don't think it's, it's difficult to make that your entire source of business, but it's a great, it's a great base. I recommend everyone gets into BPOs, definitely. Absolutely, you know. I mean, that's a little bit component of it, you know, the broker price opinion, the evaluations. Highly recommend. I think every agent should really be doing that. It's a great source of consistent income on a monthly basis. And then also it keeps you really in tune with the market and pricing. You know, like I said, on average we're doing about fifty to I mean, it's, it's about $2,000 a month in income on the BPO side. The REO side is shrinking. The good news is that, you know, I think it'll always be here, you know, unlike where it disappeared a few years ago. I think it's always going to be around for the next 10, 20 years. I also expect it to pick up again towards the end of the year. I think once the elections are over, once, you know, the Attorney General settlement has kind of flushed itself out, they spent all that, you know, $35 billion, I think REOs will come back at a fury. So I do think it's a good time. I think it's also something to just keep your fingers in and not expect to build your business 100% on it. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Now, you mentioned that your market is changing. There's more equity sales. Is that because your prices are moving up again in your market? 
No, I mean the prices are definitely moving up slightly. You know, we're having appraisal issues, which I think you know you've seen in the news a lot lately. But I think that the reason that it's it's they're becoming more part of the market is I think people realize that you know now they need to the market is probably not going to substantially change in terms of going up in big value over the next few years, and there people are making a move now. The other thing is you know we get you know people die, <laughs> a lot of people die. Right, and you know, as last I checked, you can't take your house with you. So, believe it or not, we do quite a few of those transactions. You know, where people have passed away, and and, and family members inherited the house, and you know, they don't have a need for it, and they've owned it free and clear, and they want to cash out. You know, especially now with with the possibility of taxes really going up over the next couple of years, I think people are realizing that now, if you need to make a real estate move. Yeah, I don't think you can find a better time. This is it. You know, in the next three or four months, this is it. Who knows what's going to happen after the election? If somebody wanted to get into the REO business now and, and we're not currently in the business, how would you advise them to break into the REO business? Yeah, I, I think actually, I do think there's a lot of opportunities in the REO business, uh, you know, for a lot of different reasons. Number one is you have a lot, a lot of legacy brokers that have been around a really long time that do a large chunk of the business. And I think that clients are starting to, to pull away from them. Their quality is not as good as some smaller and, you know, more nimble firms like myself, uh, where we can provide a much higher level of service. The other reason is, you know, people get fired all the time you know the demands on an REO agent are getting harder and harder and there's they're always getting rid of agents you know and they're bringing on new brokers so I think it's great to, to be in there with that you know the other thing is you know there's a big movement now especially with you know a lot of the large servicers like Bank of America like Chase like uh, Nation Star Mortgage where they're looking they're looking to you to generate new loan origination business for them. I'm always a big fan of relationships that are mutually beneficial. You know, if I can, if I can work on a way to generate new business for, for example, new loans and stuff for a Chase or a Bank of America, and then in turn, they're going to help me with my REO business, it's, it's a better cycle. And I think, again, a lot of these legacy brokers uh, aren't set up to do that. They don't have the buyer agent teams organized like that that really, underst really understand the importance of generating new business for the servicer. The other thing is it's always going to be around. There's always going to be 7 or 10% foreclosures, you know. I, I doubt we're going to go through a period like I did when I first got into business where, where there was absolutely no REO. There's always going to be it. And the other thing is it's great to get in with local banks. You know, there's a lot of local banks in your, in your marketplace that need local agents to help them, you know, with the REO business. So to answer your question about how to get into it, really it's a prospecting thing. Just like, you know, when I talked about earlier, you've got to, you've got to get out there, you've got to apply for these, to these companies, you've got to send them your resume, and you need to talk to them and you need to explain to them why you're, you're better than your competitor. They're not so much interested now in the fact that you sold 200 homes last year. They're more interested in the fact that you're going to give them an accurate BPO value, that you're going to make sure the property doesn't get vandalized. You're going to make sure that the property is marketed like a regular traditional property. They're going to make sure that you generate new loan applications for them. So I think it's, it's now more than ever easier to get in the REO world because of that than it was a few years ago. An agent trying to get an REO, would they just go direct to the bank today? Is that the best way to do it? And if so, how do they figure out who to call first? 
Yes, absolutely. They go direct to the servicer or the outsourcer. Outsourcer, you know, I mean, you know, almost every single servicer has, you know, I mean, of course, there's some internal information, you know, where to get the application, but they almost all have online applications available. The difference, what I like about REO, which really is one of the reasons I, I, I think I did really well and was attracted to it, you know, because it kind of fits in with my lobbying background. It's, it's more business to business, you know. It's not, um, you know, you're not sitting down at a dining room table with a, with a seller and kind of, you know, meeting with them at, you know, 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning. You know, it's a nine-to-five business essentially, and what you you know what you do is you know you submit your application, you find out who the vendor manager is, which is you know typically the person that manages the agent network, and you make a connection with that person, and then hopefully once you know you get accepted into their network, and then the next step is you know trying to get the assignments and following up with. You know, we do a lot of handwritten letters. We do, I do a lot of, you know, obviously phone calls. I have a lot of them with Facebook friends and LinkedIn, things like that, you know. And, you know, you just, it's, it's like, in a, a lot of ways, it's like regular real estate where, you know, a lot of it's follow-up. You said there's been a reduction in the number of outsourcers. How does someone figure out who the, the dominant outsourcers are in their area? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, one of the things that when I first started, I, I was, you know, I have a subscription to is, you know, I, I think it's maybe only on the West Coast, Mike, but it's a website called foreclosureradar.com. And Foreclosure Radar is, uh, you know, a website that allows you to track uh, notice of defaults and notice of trustee sales, which is through the foreclosure process, and who the servicer is. So, you know, if I was, let's say I was located in, in an area where, you know, I wanted to get into the REO business, you know, the first thing I would do is I would find out who the big REO agents are, right? And then I would look at their listings. And then I would look at who owns their listings. And then I would find out what banks they're working with, you know? And then what I would do is then I would target those banks, you know? I would target those banks and, you know, apply to those and make sure you're going after the banks and the servicers that are actually selling and have inventory in your marketplace. I mean, it doesn't make sense to get into a company that doesn't do business in your neighborhood, you know, because you're never going to get a listing. But a lot of it's just kind of ground uh, grunt work research, you know. Obviously, like, you know, you'd mentioned, you know, I coach, I work with Harris Real Estate University, and, you know, we do, uh, you know, we do a lot of coaching. We also publish a lot of the lists that have uh, the websites where to sign up for what servicers and things like that. So, you know, getting a hold of something like that, obviously, is helpful, you know, knowing, you know, having a kind of a matrix of, of servicers and their, and their websites and their decision makers, so that helps. You know, of course, there are also industry events. You know, there's a lot of industry events that happen on a national level as well as they happen on a local level. And I recommend all agents get involved, and there are two great organizations that I highly recommend, and I really support their missions. One is ARIA, which is, uh, I believe, is the a- uh, Asian Association of Real Estate Professionals, something like that. Uh, the other one is NAREP, National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals. Both of those organizations, they have a lot of local chapters, and you know they have local events, too. You know, with for 50 or $100, you can go to, you know, a local event in your area where you can drive to, and they almost always have asset managers and servicers at those events. And it's a great, inexpensive way for you to meet some of these asset managers face-to-face, shake their hand, and get a better understanding of exactly what they're looking for. For these two organizations you just mentioned, you said Asian and Hispanic 
Do you have to be of Asian or Hispanic descent in order to attend these meetings? No, not at all. Good question. Not at all. No, you don't. You know, they're um, nope. They're open to anybody that's a real estate professional, and and you know, they're you know, I don't want to speak for them, but you know, I understand their mission is to is to increase awareness in these underserved minority communities about how real estate works and the opportunities that are available to them. You know, they're 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 education based. They also do some national lobbying, you know, on the national front to um, you know, support funding in these areas as well. Because the word Asian and Hispanic are in there, is that referring to the markets they're trying to serve or the agents that they're trying to help? Market I think I believe it's the markets they're serving. Are there other industry trade conferences and so forth that you would recommend people go to? You know, there are quite a few of them, actually. You know, I don't, rec- I don't know if I would recommend going to them until you're at a certain level of production, you know, because they can get expensive. You know, I just came back from one in Dallas a couple of weeks ago, and that was called REO Expo, and that was put on by, I believe it's DS News, which is a, uh, you know, again, an industry publication uh, where they, you know, this default servicing news, and um, that's in Fort Worth, which is great. You know, you can go to events like that. There's REO Mac, which is another industry organization where they have conferences in Florida and here in Palm Springs. There's also Five Star, which is in um, which is in Texas as well. I mean, there are there are quite a few of them. You know, larger ones. You know, that that happen. You know, they might have between a thousand and literally five thousand uh, real estate professionals attending. They get expensive, though. You know, I mean, you're you're, you're going to spend two or three thousand dollars getting there and attending and paying for the admittance and things like that. But it's a great way. You know, when I first got into the to the REO business, Mike. You know, you know, I had a forty-five thousand dollar travel budget. You know, and I did a lot of traveling. You know, and I did a combination of going to these events. But what I did primarily was going straight to clients' offices. You know, and meeting with the clients having sit-downs, you know, going out to dinner, uh, going out to lunch, really getting to know the business that way. I think now, I don't, I don't know if that's necessary in today's market, you know, the REO business is, is much more evolved, and it's a lot less kind of good old boys network than it was. So breaking in is a little bit easier, and it's not as locked down. And again, you know, these, all these, all, everyone that we're talking about, you know, they all have scorecards. They all rate you on your performance, and it's a lot of it's heavily performance-based. You mentioned BPOs, and that the BPOs is a great source of income, also a great way to get a handle on your market and pricing. Are BPOs still a good way to get into the REO business? Absolutely, I and mean, I think that I would not if you know if I was a new agent, and this is how I even did it. You know, I wouldn't start getting into REOs unless you're you're already doing a consistent BPO business. Essentially, your BPO is your company brochure, right? The clients hire you to give an accurate pricing value of that asset, right? Whether as as is or repaired. That's your job, right? You screw that up, you're going to get out of business pretty quick. So uh, you really need to master the BPOs. And, um, you know, you know, I'll give the story a little bit about, you know, the way that I got into my first REO account was Aquin. You know, they're, they're a company based out of uh, Luxembourg and Montevideo. You know, they, they have offices here, but they're, they're, off, they're offshore, you know. And they, they have, recently they've, they've, they bought Litton, they bought Saxon. I mean, they're growing, they're huge. But, you know, how I got into it was, you know, I got, you know, they, their policy was do 35 BPOs, we'll start giving you REOs. 
So uh, I got into their system, and I called them every day. Give me some more BPOs. Give me some more BPOs. You know, I built up that and that experience. I, I, got, I got really good at doing BPOs. And once I passed that 35 mark, they started assigning me REO assignments, which is great. You know, I, don't, I don't think they do that anymore, but it's nice. And almost all uh, big REO companies are going to want you to prove yourself in the BPO world before they start assigning you assets. How does an agent get good at a BPO? How do they perfect their skill? Yeah, it's, it's trial and error. It's really a matter of just doing it. You know, um, it's practice. You got to practice, and you got to practice. You know, right now, my team, everyone on my team, we can do an Aquin BPO in 15 minutes, including getting photos. You know, sometimes 12 minutes. You know, we're we're, we're good at it. We're really good at. It. However, when I first started, it would take me two hours. So it's practice. It really is. It's a lot of just doing them. You've got to, you've, and you've got to get good at knowing your market. I mean, you really need to know the intricacies of your market, and you also need to know how to convey that to the client succinctly and correctly. You know, so I mean, that's that's really where that's really where you know the rubber meets the road is getting those BPOs done, and not only getting them done, but getting them done before they're due. Right? Don't wait till they're due. Get them done before they're due, so your so your scorecard looks good. Mark, could you walk us through the process of a, a single transaction, an REO transaction from start to finish? What happens in the very beginning and then just walk us step by step, you know, big picture steps all the way down to the end at the closing? Sure. For example, let's talk about Bank of America. Let's use Bank of America as an example. Okay? There are, there are two major software platforms that almost all of the REO companies use. And these are software platforms that are in the cloud. They're web-based, and they contain all the tasking and the information that a client will use to sell an asset. Okay, and they are Equator.com. You know, it's E-Q-U-A-T-O-R.com. And the other one is Resnet.com. R-E-S.N-E-T. So the first step to do is you got to sign up for both those. You know, they're they're either free or low cost. You know, you get into those. You need to be in a system to get an assignment. So for example. Let's use Equator. So what will happen is, you know, we'll get an assignment. We'll get a property assigned to us. You know, we'll get an email uh, or a task in Equator that goes, congratulations, you've been assigned this new Bank of America property. You know, your first, your first thing that you need to do is, you need to, number one, you need to accept that assignment. You know, accept it in the system. And the second thing you need to do, and usually it's due within 24 hours, preferably before end the business day, is you need to do what's called an occupancy inspection. You need to physically go out to that property. You need to take some photos of the exterior of the home. You need to knock on the door, and you need to find out who's living there. You know, and then you need to find out if they're a tenant or if they're a, uh, if they're a former borrower. right? And you collect that information, get back to your office, you report that to the client. Bank of America will immediately then assign you what's called an initial BPO. They'll want to know the value of that property based on an exterior observation. So you'll have to finish that. And that will be due within 72 hours. And you've got to get that done. You want to get that done in 24 hours. You know, again, all these clients, it's all score-driven. So you want to try and beat the times, you know, which makes your score look better than your competitors. Once you report back to the client whether the property is occupied by a tenant or a borrower, let's just assume it's occupied by the former borrower, okay, for this example. 
So the property is occupied. What will happen is Bank of America will then shoot you another task that says, you know, what we do is we'd like you to make contact with a borrower, a former borrower. We'd like you to offer them relocation assistance, sometimes called cash for keys, where Bank of America will pay them, you know, let's say around five or eight thousand dollars to get out of the property and leave it in a broom swept condition in the next 30 days. So what you try and do is you try and get them, this occupant, to agree to move out and it's in a contract form and get and get this money, you know, uh, if they participate. Hopefully they will, you know, if they do, it's great. You know, they move out, you give them the money, and then you move on with the sales process. If they don't, you know, Bank of America will file an eviction. You know, you'll keep in contact with that person. You'll be visiting the property every week to make sure they don't move out. Uh, you'll be watching it to make sure it doesn't have any damages. You'll be checking to make sure it doesn't have any code violations. You'll be, working, you'll be contacting the city to check to see if it has any pending uh, code violations or any litigation. And then you might see them in court. And you go to court. You know, I go to court once or twice a week almost on average where you do what's called an unlawful detainer hearing where, you know, I represent the bank as their agent. I testify on their behalf at the, at the court hearing that the property is occupied by this individual. They're unlawfully occupying it, and you get an eviction. Once you get an eviction, you'll get the sheriffs out there, and then you'll do what's called a sheriff lockout. Well, you'll meet the sheriffs with your locksmith. Uh, they'll, they'll, evict the, they'll physically get documents out of the house. You'll have the property rekeyed. You post notice. Uh, you do in California, it's an 18-day personal property eviction. Uh, you leave the property, you know, you kind of don't touch it for 18 days. You record everything that's in there, and then hopefully, they, they, you know, after 18 days, you get the property. So once then the property is vacant, you will probably have to do another broker price opinion. And in this broker price opinion, what you'll do is you'll outline everything. You'll, first, you'll outline what the value is on the property and it's as-is condition, nothing, you know, n n not touching it except for any safety hazards that you might have, you know. The other thing you'll do is you'll, then you'll generate a value based on its, what's called as-repaired value. And this value is, is what the property would be worth if Bank of America decided to fully renovate the property and bring it to what we consider a lendable condition, something where you know not only all the safety hazards are conditioned, but you have no peeling paint. You know you have all your all your you know your um, uh, your fixtures are working. You know the property is in a good, showable, presentable condition. Bank of America will then ask you to provide them two to three competitive bids on bringing that property to its fully lendable, marketable condition. And if they decide to do that, what you'll do is then you'll manage the contractors to renovate the property, get it fixed up, get it cleaned up, get it painted, get it, you know, get it ready to go. And then Bank of America will give you a list price. They'll say, okay, Mark, go ahead and get this property listed on the MLS. We want it at this price. And you put it in the MLS and then you continue to market it. And, um, and so you, what you do is, you know, you get it listed, you get it marketed. You know, I do my YouTube videos. We do all our nice photos. We, we blast it through our, our, you know, list hub and all the other online marketing. We might have some open houses. We get offers, things like that. And with Bank of America, they require a pre-approval for any buyer. that They have to have a Bank of America or Merrill Lynch pre-approval. So we'll make sure the buyers are getting pre-approved by Bank of America or Merrill Lynch. Once that happens, we start getting offers. You then enter those offers into Equator. You know, again, 
All of this is task-driven through Equator, through their software platform. You'll get tasks that say, turn on the utilities. You'll get tasks that say, you know, send us any code violations. You'll get tasks that say, give us an updated broker price opinion. You'll get tasks that say, send us your MLS listing. You'll get tasks that say, you know, anything you can think of that's related to the sale of the property will be tasked to you with a deadline in Equator that you've got to get done. Okay. Then once you get offers, you submit those to Equator. Uh, you negotiate the asset manager will negotiate the offers with you through Equator, where you're in the process of communicating with a buyer agent, and you know the asset manager putting in the new terms. You negotiate. Once you become get up, you get an accepted offer. Bank of America will then send you an addendum, you know, or addenda, which is I think it's 25 pages, something like that, 24, 25 pages of additional Bank of America specific disclosures that you'll have the buyer sign and the agent sign and you'll sign. You have you package those together with their offer, with any other accompanying information like their pre-qual letter, things like that. You'll upload that document in PDF. You know, this is one thing you definitely want to do. If you want to be a REO agent, you need to go and buy a full version of Adobe Acrobat. That's going to be your software of choice. Everything is through in PDF format for these files. You upload that contract into Equator. If you're lucky, three to five business days go by. Bank of America will execute that contract, and they will then return that contract to you through Equator. And they will also open up escrow here in California. We're in escrow state, and they will order title. And then, again, that's all tasks through Equator. You know, you just kind of look at Equator. You can see your workflow right through there, which is pretty easy. It's really, really easy to deal with. Then, you know, you open escrow, and, you know, the, the buyer does their inspections. They do their appraisals. If they have any repair requests, you submit those to the client to negotiate. Uh, if the property needs an extension, you get an extension. You know, and again, this is all through Equator. And then, you know, the property is ready to close. Uh, you know, they approve the HUD-1, which is, you know, a detailed list of all the expenses and, and charges and the income related to that transaction. They approve the HUD-1. The transaction closes, and then you get paid, and then, you know, the, the, the new person gets their property. It's, it's pretty straightforward, you know. It's um, the only difference between, you know, a regular seller and an REO is, you know, you're doing everything through email typically, and you're doing everything through, you know, their particular platform, whether it's Equator, ResNet, or their own, like, you know, HUD is a thing called Yardi. Or, and uh, you, might, you might have to, you know, you might have to come out of pocket for certain expenses. What's great is, unlike years ago, uh, where you know it was my responsibility to front five, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars for the cash for keys relocation and for the the contractor repairs, most companies, almost all outsourcers, have third-party national vendors that do that for you. So what your job is just to kind of manage them. So you don't have to come out of pocket a lot of money anymore like you used to. You know, you only have to usually pay for utilities, electrical gas, things like that, maybe code violations, maybe an emergency repair here and there, you know. Right now, I think our average out-of-pocket expenses and for reimbursables is about $500. I think that's on the high side for each property. Whereas three or four years ago, you know, it was three or $4,000 you'd have to front. They make it a lot easier, it's, it, and, you know, they pay the contractor directly. You know, you don't have to even deal with that in a lot of ways.
So that reimbursement challenge has been reduced. Mm-hmm. Do you still have a bookkeeper to help you track all that? Yes. You know, I have a full-time bookkeeper. Full, well, full-time bookkeeper, BP, everyone does BPOs, so <laughs> bookkeeping and BPO, you know? I try and have all my, my staff cross-trained. You know, they almost all, you know, I have three inside staff members, and each one of them more or less can do about 80% of each other's job. You know, they have 20% that's pretty specific to their own, like the bookkeeping, for example. Um, but it has gone down, you know. My bookkeeping, you know, my accounts receivable at one time was thirty to $40,000. Right now, it's very, very rare that we're above $5,000 unless there's something going on that's, you know, significant that we had to front for whatever reason, which is nice. You mentioned your team. Let's do that right now. Let's walk through the positions that you have on your team how many positions do you have? What are their titles? What do they do? And how do you pay them? Yeah, no problem. I'd be happy to go through that, Mike. You know, I have, um, you know, you know, outside of my buyer agents, you know, where I have three buyer agents, do I have three, three or four right now? I have, you know, uh, basically an administrative team. I have a, a closing manager where, you know, her role is to basically once the property goes into escrow, uh, she, you know, she closes it. So. Her job is really, besides BPOs, like I said, everyone does BPOs. You know, they're in the morning, they're all doing BPOs. But in the afternoon, in the late morning, she's closing. So she works as like a, a, a TC person, you know, or a closer. So she manages all that. She gets paid an hourly wage. I think it's around 13 to $15 an hour in a salary form. She also gets $100 a transaction for, for you know, closing bonus every month. And we close between 10 and 20 units a month. I have a full-time accounting person, bookkeeper, where her job is to manage all my brokerage's finances, which includes, you know, of course, all the expense reimbursables, distribution of the commissions, you know, anything related to money. She handles running my profit and loss statements, running my, my you know, balance sheet, things like that, and, of course, you know, the BPOs. She gets paid similar, exact same as the closer. And then I have, you know, a college student that works, you know, about three quarters of the time to kind of pick up some of the other pieces as well as do BPOs. She does primarily all of the, the marketing in terms of, you know, keeping the MLS updated, keeping our blogs updated with our listing information, um, you know, helping with ordering and doing the research on code violations, managing some of the contractors, uh, things like that. We don't at this time have a field person. You know, in the past, I've run a full-time field person where their job would be to spend 40 to 50 hours a week out in the field, you know, looking at the properties. You know, because our inventory has shrunk, you know, before we had over 100 properties that we were managing at one time, we're down to 60 to 70. We all take turns doing that, us, us four. And, you know, I might, I might have some part-time staff, you know, college kids that I know that come in and if we're overloaded one day or something, that will help go and take photos of stuff. So she's paid, she gets paid a little bit less per hour and then she also makes less on a closing, I think 10 or $20 per closing. But everyone's incentivized on closings and they get paid, we close, you know, they get paid per month on that, you know. So they're motivated to get stuff closed by the end of the month because they get paid the next day, you know, on those bonuses. My role is, you know, I generate new business I, and I negotiate pretty much all offers. And I review, you know, probably I review 100% of the BPOs that are for our particular assets. 
I don't review the secondary BPOs, but you know, my job is I negotiate. You know, I, I spend most of my not most of my day, but a couple hours a day negotiating offers on contracts. You know, working with the buyer agents to put deals together, uh, things like that, and going on appointments, of course. You know, lots of appointments. I'm sure you have a way to track all this. You're using a lot of systems in your office. Are you tracking everything through these platforms that are provided, the Equator and the ResNet, or do you have some type of internal software that you're using to track? Yeah, no, we um, no, we have a third-party software that we use. You know, I've gone down the road. I've tried lots of different things. You know, in the beginning, it was just an Excel spreadsheet, and then I built my own custom database. And then, but right now, there are so many great products on the market for this. We use one. It's called Broker Brain, by a big REO agent out of Las Vegas. You know, I really like it a lot. It's it's very visually appealing, and it is you know similar to Equator, where it's task-driven. You know, our our system is task-driven as well. So. You know, we put all of our properties in this system. It allows me to get a quick snapshot of what's going on in terms of the number of assets we have and where they are, whether they're in an eviction status, whether they're in a pre-marketing status, whether they're listed or an escrow or closed. And every time you move a property from one status to the next, it triggers a set of tasks for each of, the, uh, of my internal staff to complete. So obviously if a property moves from eviction to 18-day personal property hold, we got to make sure we post the notice. We got to make sure we get photos to the client. We got to make sure we get the utilities on, and we got to make sure we do all the code violation checks. You know things like that. And then when it moves to another status, you know you get you know we have all those tasks as well. So it really makes it a lot easier. The thing that I like about it the most, and you know I I foresee everybody in the future in this business moving to this is that. Agents make offers online. You know, they go to our website, shandrogroup.com, they click on the offers button, all our properties are right there, and then they can fill out a simple form and then attach their PDF file and upload it directly into that system, which allows me then to negotiate the offer and then put that offer into uh, Equator or ResNet or whatever platform for the client to review. I mean, it beats, you know, when I first started, you know, everything came through our fax, you know, and it was, you know, hundreds of, it was just, you know, I mean, I was spending $300 a month just on paper, and it was crazy, you know. So it's been great to get rid of that. It's better for the environment, of course, and it's much easier to manage. Mark, you're a wealth of information on REOs. You teach, you coach this class. Tell us a little bit more about the, the class that you're teaching. Yeah, no, thanks for that, Mike. Um, you know, I, I, I teach two different classes. You know, I work with, you know, the other thing that, you know, and we didn't talk about this a little bit, but, you know, I've always had a coach, you know. Uh, you know, first when I got into the business, you know, one of the reasons I went with Keller Williams is because, you know, the broker there or the and the manager or whatever, I forget what they call him now, but, you know, he was really good at, you know, he was very, um, you know, great at coaching and really knew his scripts and dialogues and really helped me, you know, and, and I worked with him closely for about six or eight months, you know, and I kind of, you know, went, you know, kind of went through a lot of what he could help me, and then I went to the Mike Ferry organization, which I'm sure you've heard of, it's just a national coaching company, uh, and, I, and I was with them for about 18, 24 months. And then, you know, one of the coaches from that company left, his name is Tim Harris, and started his own company called Harris Real Estate University, and I've been with Tim and Julie Harris ever since then. So um, I've always had a coach. You know, it's, 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 I think it's incredibly important to have someone help you, uh, you know, kind of not only have they been there before, 
but they give you a great perspective. And for me, it's always been very important because they, since they talk to so many agents on a regular basis, they see the future a little bit better. They see the market that's coming up and turning. He was the one that got me into short sales way before everyone else. He was the one that got me to do REOs way before everyone else. He is the one that's getting me back into doing short sales again like I'm supposed to be doing. You know, So having someone to kind of push you along uh, and help you with, you know, from basic, from scripts and dialogues to really putting your business in the right direction and making sure that you're saving, you know, doing all of this hard work. I mean, it's the most depressing thing in the world, Mike. I tell you, when you, you know, you work, and I'm sure everyone can relate to this, you work your butt off all year, you know, you, you think you're doing well, and then in the year you look at your bank account, and you're like, I, I wasn't no further than I was last year, you know? Um, to me, that's very disheartening, you know? So, I really focus on saving money. So every single call, it's a discussion about how much money I've saved and how come I haven't saved more. <laughs> um, but um, the classes that I teach are, you know, I work on, on one at Harris Real Estate University, which is RSD designation. It's, it's what we do is we have a weekly group coaching call where we have a company of the week and we talk about exactly what you need to do to apply and get into that company with specifics such as, you know, the application, who the vendor manager is, things like that. And then we have topics that go over, you know, the real basics of, of doing the REO business and helping you get into it. And then I have another one, and this is the other area that, you know, I've always felt has, has, has really contributed to my success in this business. And this is why I'm excited about being on this call as a mastermind. You know, it's a mastermind call of some select students within the university, and we have a mastermind call every week, and we get really into the details. Of, of what people are doing with their business, how everyone can help each other, you know, keeping on accountability. You know, I've had, I've been involved in mastermind, you know, groups, you know, f you know, ever since I've been in real estate and before, and I've found that my biggest successes and my biggest referrals come from other agents around the country, you know, and that's how I've been able to really bring my business up a level every single year is, you know, Christy Mayshore referred me to you. Christy and I have a great relationship. We share a lot of great information. And we talk on a regular basis. Uh, I really think that's, that's the key to success in this business is being connected to other agents and peers that are hopefully doing more business and volume than you outside of your local marketplace to exchange ideas and to exchange connections. And that's really where you can really excel. And it, it keeps you from being isolated in a little bubble. And it also keeps you from, and one of the reasons I left and started my own brokerage is, you know, a brokerage can be comprised of two, three, four, five hundred different agents that are in varying levels of skill, you know, and success. And it's easy to get caught up in the wrong group, you know, and with the negativity that goes around with that. So you really got to work on your, your mental state and stay very positive. And being involved in mastermind groups like that have, have been instrumental in that for me. This mastermind class that you have each week, how many people are in it? You know, I, you know we vary between 10 and 20. You know, it's not a, not a big group. You know, it's a pretty small hand, select few people that, you know, apply. And, and you know, if you fit, we bring you in. And they're, all, they're, from, they're agents from all around the country. You know, they're from California to to Oregon, to Rhode Island, to Chicago, to Florida. So it's a nice mix. And what's great is, you know, they bring a, they bring a client list to the table. I bring a client list to the table. 
And I mean, as you know, what what better way to get business is through a warm referral. If somebody wanted to participate in one of your classes, how would they do it? You can go to markshander.com, and you know, on the right-hand side, there's a banner that you can just click on that, and that'll take you right to the classes. Is there anything else you want to tell us about the classes? How much they cost, or what's the best class to start with? Sure. You know, there's there's several different classes. You know, uh, one of my associates teaches uh, Rodney Forbes, great guy. He's just been in the business three years and had phenomenal success. He teaches a BPO class. You know, I think you got to get the BPOs down. Both him and I also, and that's $97 a month. Uh, the REO class we teach is also $97 a month. The mastermind class is $197. So they're, they're affordable. I mean, compared to what I was paying at Mike Ferry at $1,000 a month, it's a bargain, you know, I think. You know, I mean, the coaching in the past, I've always paid $800 to $1,000 a month, which is a lot. We try and do group calls, so it's a lot less expensive for people. Uh, plus, it's all recorded, and, you know, like this, you can go back and listen to it. But you know, the way that you're going to be successful in this business is just constantly learning. You know, I, I love, you know, I've listened to several of your calls, Mike, you know, and uh, I, I, I like it. I, I get something from every single call. I write it down. I implement it, you know, and, and you know, that's, that's the key. You've got to constantly be looking for new ideas, and you, know, you can't get complacent. Complacency will make you broke. I think you wrote down somewhere that something was interesting to me. You said that sales is how you make money to invest in other income generating businesses. What did you mean by that? You know, that, that's something that I kind of really learned the hard way in this business a little bit. You know, uh, I don't know anybody that's made millions of dollars just selling real estate as a real estate salesperson. You know, and I mean by that is, you know, going out, taking a listing, listing the property, getting it sold, and getting a commission. It's, it's a great way to earn a living. It's a really tough way to build wealth. It's just, there's just, it's, it, it, the business is too cyclical. It goes up and down. So, you know, for me, you know, the, the reason that I'm still in this business is that, you know, I'm able to generate a good income, you know, pay my bills, pay, you know, support my family, you know, support my, you know, my employees and my staff, you know, people I care about, but then take that money and save it, right? And then take that money that you saved and invest it, you know, and put it in things that, you know, that allow you to continue to generate income. You know, the goal is to, you know, get enough money. I mean, it's like they say, you know, you're only as wealthy, you, you know, your wealth is really defined by how long you can live at your current lifestyle without, you know, digging into your savings. So finding that passive income is important. So, you know, I've been lucky, you know, I, I've been able to buy some, some real estate for myself that generates income, which is great. You know, I've also uh, invested in several businesses. You know, I have, you know, I own, I'm part owner of another, another company, you know, with, with some friends that I went to college with um, that does really well. It's, it's totally outside of this business. So, you know, I've been able to do that because I had the money that I made in real estate. And if I didn't have that money, I wouldn't be able to invest in these other businesses. And what's funny, Mike, is that, you know, the fundamentals that we learn in real estate sales you know, from the from the prospecting to the sales to the marketing is easily applicable to almost any other business out there, any other small business, whether it's a, a laundromat, whether it's a, you know, a car wash, whether it's a restaurant. Having these basic marketing and sales skills can be applied to almost any business. And that's the value that you can bring to to other businesses, and that's what I've been able to do by using these skills and bringing them to other businesses.
I've read somewhere that you're giving back 1% of your income to the local community. What's that all about? Yeah, you know, we have, um, you know, we have a, it's called a 1%, 1% program, and, you know, I donate, you know, 1% of, um, you know, my gross incomes on a monthly basis to local, to local, you know, nonprofits, you know, uh, whether it's the local schools, whether it's the business district, whatever, you know, we feel, you know, giving back is, is I think it's important to me, you know, I, I'm excited, you know, in the future, I plan on doing a lot more as, you know, my wealth builds, but, you know, it's exciting to be able to, support local causes, be involved in the community, and really be an integral part, you know, of, of, of the area. And I think it's important to give back. You know, it's, it's, you know, we're blessed in that we, you know, we have these opportunities and be able to make this amount of money. And I think it's important to, you know, not forget that and support those that, 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 can't, that can't do it. Who decides where those funds will be directed? Are you allowing your client to decide that or are you deciding that on a, on a month-by-month basis? You know, we usually decided on a month-by-month basis. Like last month, you know, uh, I think we did about $100,000 in sales, so and we gave out $1,000. And, you know, I, I decided on $500, went to a local school here, and then I let my staff decide where to donate the rest of the money. And they, they chose some animal shelters because, you know, unfortunately we do find a lot of abandoned animals in, our, in some of our properties, so it's nice to be able to give back, you know, to help support that. Mark, how do you keep control of your time? You know, I, honestly, I struggle with that, Mike. That's that's a problem that I have. You know, I tend to become a little bit obsessive and work probably more than I should. It's tough. It's tough. You know, I, I you know the, the biggest thing I do is you know I have a list every single day that I rewrite, brand new list. You know, and, and I hit the priorities. You know, I really, uh, you know, one of my biggest you know fans and and people that I respect is you know Tim Ferriss who wrote the Four Hour Work Week. I really try and do that model where, I mean, I try and outsource and task out almost everything that I can do, so that allows me to focus on the things that are going to generate money the most. You know, I get into work usually 7:30, 8 o'clock every day. I try and get home by dinner. I, you know, and I say try, it doesn't always happen. You know, I never work on Sundays. You know, uh, I, I do work a half day Saturday. And, you know, I take, I, I take a lot of vacations, you know, and that's one of the great things with this, this business is that you're able to, you know, be flexible, especially if you have a great team, and that's, that's when I get to spend time with my family is, you know, go on vacations. But for the most part, I really stick to, you know, the morning is set up for marketing and uh, lead generation and contract negotiations. The afternoons are set up with the other stuff. How many hours do you think you work in a typical week? I work probably maybe 50, 50 to 60 most. Yeah, 40 hours does not exist. (laughs) Mark, what drives you? You know, I think the thing that drives me the most is, you know, ever since I was a kid, I I really wanted to be so-called rich, you know, and, and... and not be tied to the working class, so to speak. And, and not that being in the working class is a bad thing at all, but you know, I really want to be able to be financially independent. You know, I don't, I don't want to have to work. I don't want to have to take orders from anybody. I don't, uh, you know, it drives me, and, and that's what drives my savings. You know, I really, I want to um, build enough wealth where that you know I can retire soon, and you know I can provide the kids the opportunities that they deserve. And I can go back and do much more nonprofit stuff. You know, I, I think the greatest title in the world is, you know, another one of my heroes is, you know, Eli Broad. You know, he's he's one of the founders of Kaufman Broad here in Los Angeles. 
and he's got the best title in the world. You know, his title is Billionaire Philanthropist. You know, I like to be a billionaire philanthropist. Mark, why have you been so successful? I think the main things, and kind of back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, you know, and uh, I think I've been successful in this business for the main reasons, you know, having the coaching I think has been indispensable, uh, and having the mastermind opportunities, which obviously, you know, you're, you're a big part of, I think it's important. And the other thing is, is, is just making sure that you can change. You know, you've got to be adaptable. You've got to be able to see where the market's going, and you've got to change, and you've got to be comfortable with going after different types of clients. You know, for example, right now, we didn't really talk about this, but I'm really building quickly in my hedge fund business. You know, these, there's a lot of hedge funds out there that is relatively new in the last six to eight months, and they're buying huge portfolios of property. And that's new. That's totally different. You know, that's something that they don't work like banks. They don't work like traditional sellers. They're different. You know, they have different criteria. They have different um, investment standards. So, you know, that's something that we're going after as well. So being able to constantly adapt to the changing market and recognizing that, you know, you need to change as well and you need to consider your clients, lots of different people, all the, different, all the time. These hedge funds, are you trying to help them purchase property or sell property or both? Both. You know, what happens a lot of times is, you know, a hedge fund will get what's called a tape. They'll get a list of 200, 500, whatever, a list of properties. What they'll do is they'll bring that to us and, you know, the properties in our marketplace. And, you know, if I know agents around the country, I refer them to them. We do all of the evaluate, evaluation work, you know, giving, you know, checking the property for occupancy levels and what have you. And then generating a value for them, they'll go back, they'll bid on it. And if they get the property... Um, then we help them sell it. So, you know, like Bank of America and Chase, all of them, they're selling off large pools of properties, $20, $50 million worth of servicing that for whatever reason they got to get rid of and they need the money or whatever, these hedge funds are picking them up like crazy. It's a really growing area. And so the hedge funds are acting like large investor flippers. They're flipping the property. Yes, exactly. Or we have several that are buying and holding them and keeping them for rentals. Would you be helping them on the rental management side? No, we we don't do much rental management. You know, I, you know, we have a few. I manage my own, you know, my own portfolio, and we have a few select clients. But it's not something that we're really chasing. Mark, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? I would tell them to, you know, obviously sign up for some sort of coaching. You know, absolutely. You know. I would also tell them to they need to master their scripts and dialogues, and then I would tell them they need to prospect three to four hours per day. Mark, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing right now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? I think they're they're more than valuable. I think they're critical. You know, one of the things that um, you know I remember back you know when I first started and how I would get motivated in the morning is you know I'm sure you've read you know Gary Keller's Millionaire Real Estate Agent book you know, the MREA, and, you know, that was my Bible in the beginning, and uh, one of the things that, you know, I really, really got excited about was, you know, at the end of that book, there's a bunch of case studies, you know, there's 20 or 30 or 40 different case studies of agents, and kind of gives a highlight and snapshot of their business, and it was amazing, and they're like little interviews like we're talking about now, and, you know, they, they, they got me uh, really jazzed, they got me really pumped up to, to do this. And then when I got into the Mike Ferry organization, he had a lot of CDs and audio tapes of interviews with other top producing agents, 
you know, I, I would constantly listen to those, you know, and and I still do to this day listen to tons of, of agent interviews from lots of different websites, including yours, and and really um, it may not all be applicable, but it, but it helps you really understand, you know, the direction that you can go to to be successful, but also you get new ideas, you know, you constantly get new ideas and it gets you, you know, it gets you generated, it gets you really pumped up and it fills up your bucket to go out and hit the day. Mark, we've come to the end of our interview for today. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about that we haven't talked about yet? I think we hit on it a little bit, but, you know, I, I think the main thing is, you know, you're in this business to make a profit and you need to really focus on that and make sure that you are profitable and that once you're profitable, and it should be right away, you need to be saving 10 or 20% of that profit every single month. Otherwise, you might as well go get a job. Well, Mark, you speak the truth. You have succeeded by your willingness to stay flexible and roll with the markets. You accelerated your career by making 50 phone contacts per day. Then you applied that persistence to the different markets you chose to pursue. Your discipline to save 10 to 30% of your income is building wealth for you, your family, and those charities I know you will help. I hope someday to call you the billionaire real estate agent philanthropist. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. Join us next call when we talk to an agent who started selling real estate when he was 18 years old, sold over 3,500 homes in his career, closes 200 to 400 homes per year, and does it all in a small rural town of only 15,000 people. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.